Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to welcome all listeners from around the world to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Jaspal Singh. Mobility Innovators Podcast invites key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their thoughts about the key changes in the sector, about their work, and what is their forecast for the future. This is our second podcast on blockchain technology. It is the right time to discuss this topic and advocate for the same. Our today's guest is not only conceptualizing, but converting some of the futuristic idea into reality. He's the CEO and co-founder of iMob, a decentralized internet of mobility network. Since obtaining his PhD in the strategy and entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado in 2001, he spent the past two decades focused on accelerating the path to a low-carbon sustainable economy. This includes publishing three books and starting a handful of ventures in the smart city and sustainability arena. I'm so happy to welcome Boyd Kohan, CEO and co-founder of iMob. Before starting this episode, I would like to share a few general definitions for the audience. A blockchain. Blockchain is a virtual decentralized database or ledger, often encrypted for security and maintaining a permanent and temper-proof record of transactional data. It is managed by a computer allowing a peer-to-peer network, whereby each of the peers in the network maintain a copy of the ledger. A blockchain network. A blockchain network is a technical infrastructure that provides ledger and smart contract services to applications. A token represents a set of a rule encoded in a smart contract. Each token belongs to a blockchain address. It's essentially a digital asset that is stored securely on the blockchain. NFT are non-fungible tokens, unique digital assets, the ownership of which is recorded on a blockchain. DAO Decentralized Autonomous Organization is an organization constructed by rule encoded as a computer program by the member. In short, they are member-owned communities without centralized leadership. IRL is an abbreviation of in real life something, which is the real world and outside the digital world of communication, gaming, and virtual reality. Wallet is a crypto wallet, a place where you can securely keep your crypto. Airdrop involves sending free coins and tokens to wallet addresses to promote awareness of a new currency. Now it's time to listen and learn. Hello, Boyd. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited as well. Looking forward to learn from you. So today I'll be spending time getting to know you about IMOP, which is Internet of Mobility, and your thought on application of blockchain in mobility. And to begin with, I would like to ask you to share with our listener a little more about yourself. And also, are there any interesting facts about your career that are not on LinkedIn? Okay, so I'll make sure that anything I share, even if it's unknown, is not um, something that shouldn't be shared. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> um, so I think one thing, you know, professionally that's interesting is, you know, as I reflect on my career, you know, a lot of people in the last few years have been talking about like three of the most recent in the history of humanity sort of technological disruptions. I've been thinking about my own role in each of them, and it's probably not obvious in in my LinkedIn. Um, People talk about the dot-com boom of um, Web 2.0, and 
Interestingly, I was in that space at, in my PhD at the University of Colorado, and I was one of the first uh, researchers studying the dot-coms as an academic in the entrepreneurship space. And I was curious at the time, if any of you recall, like the craziness around all these initial public offerings that these pets.com were doing with no traditional fundamentals. So I was trying to get under the hood and understand what factors of legitimacy influence evaluation of startups in the dot-com space when they went public. And I had like three categories. I looked at the founding team. I looked at the company itself. And I looked at the industry they were trying to disrupt. So in, in that boom of web uh, web 2.0 i was a researcher observing and and publishing research the second boom is mobile yeah. and in mobile i actually had now made the transition from a pure academic to a hybrid academic entrepreneur and one of my first companies was a company called third whale and we were to my knowledge the very first company in the world building mobile apps for green consumers so our core app was like a Yelp for green consumers for North America. So we acquired a database of sustainability and fair trade businesses around North America. And we okay. created an, a, a mobile app at that time, BlackBerry was still important. So we had an, a native app for BlackBerry, iOS and Android. And this was like 2009, right when the app stores were released. I remember I did a pitch of my startup in Silicon Valley. And it was funny because my PhD is in entrepreneurship and I studied Silicon Valley my first time ever going there. And I was there as an entrepreneur and I was an academic pitching my startup out of 45 entrepreneurs. And we were chosen top five, which got me all excited. And I, I, we rented a space in Silicon Valley and all the rest. The, the project didn't get that far. We did license the technology to a, a US company because we were based in Vancouver at the time. Okay. So that second boom, I was involved as an entrepreneur. I always, all my entrepreneurial activity has been in the sustainability space uh, and low carbon. And then the third huge wave, that's probably the biggest tsunami and wave we've seen in the history of humanity around technology and what it can do for, for us and, and society and the planet is blockchain. Yeah. And again, I'm back in that one. So in 2016, I started writing a book about how blockchain could change the way we interact uh, with the economic activities and startups and how there's ways to coordinate in a different kind of way. I call it a post-capitalist entrepreneurship. And as I was writing that book, I got invited by a, by a venture fund to say, hey, Boyd, you should start a blockchain startup in the smart city space, because that's where I've done a lot of work. And long story, I found my co-founder, Joseph Sanjuas, in 2017, and we incorporated IMOV in 2018. We've gone through iterations, which we'll talk about now. But I think um, the summary point I'm trying to make is I've had kind of a front row seat, either as an observer or <laughs> an actor in three of the biggest technological transformations of, of our time. That's amazing. I love the story you mentioned about three waves and uh, moving from web 2.0 to mobile and now blockchain. And I think every time the tide and wave is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful. So <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are getting more trained to deal with these waves. In fact, uh, in 2009 and 10, there was a company like Webvan, which was doing online delivery of stuff and all, uh, which is quite popular these days, uh, Instacart and all. I think that company was ahead of their time uh, and yeah. weren't able to sustain. But uh, now we are seeing technologies, adoption has increased, people are more used to it and, and things are getting better. And I am pretty optimistic about blockchain. It's, it's going to change things. 
now my second question is about your career and i must say that i'm really inspired and and loved your journey so far you started your career as a change management consultant with accenture but quickly joined the academia and and work in various position in university in three different continents uh, and amazing because you met students and entrepreneur from three different world you started your journey as an assistant professor of entrepreneurship and sustainability in spain in 2001 and then moved to canada later to argentina later to chile and come back to spain and the most impressive thing is that you taught entrepreneurship and sustainability in all these places so it's amazing because people don't get chance to live that kind of a life and finally you mentioned you launched your imob in 2017 as a co-founder in spain so why this move in the career i mean when you are teaching and moving across the world why did uh, you decided to come into the arena uh, what motivated you to move from the role of a coach to player now <laughs> the funny thing is so when i first got my phd in 2001 i was teaching sustainable entrepreneurship as you said i was one of the first professors in the world teaching that now it seems so pretty normal but this oh, was yeah. 2001 we're talking 21 years ago right um so i was teaching it and i was excited about the topic and my students were but at some point i came to realize i didn't know what i was talking about like i was i started to feel bad for my students because i was professing and teaching i wasn't really a very lecture oriented professor i was always kind of focused on hands on learn by doing and moving away from textbooks and like being trying to be an entrepreneur but i never tried to be one myself <laughs> and so i started uh, in 2000 2 no 2004 i think was when i started playing around with trying to be an entrepreneur while i was an academic which i don't recommend for anyone that's really hard <laughs> um and you know after like 3 years of being a founder i realized i had gotten like a new phd in the real world of what it means to actually start up a company and then i really felt bad for all my prior students who had to listen to me explain from books what i what i knew about being an entrepreneur so i went back and forth between being an entrepreneur and being an academic in sustainable entrepreneurship over really two decades almost and then uh in 2015 after have well, i moved to barcelona i i took the position of dean of research at a business school in barcelona and a couple years in i got the entrepreneurship bug again and at first i tried doing both yeah. realized i couldn't do both and by 2018 i was like okay if i want i am up to be successful say goodbye to academics which you know for a lot of people is kind of scary yeah. because you have this stable sort of tenured income and security and we had a nice house and all these things and it was like thankfully my wife is really supportive and she's also ambitious and believes in me and believes in taking risks in life so she supported me all along and here we are uh, and i haven't gone back to academics since 2018 which is great so it means things are getting better and bigger so for sure in fact this remind me of my personal story so when i quit my public sector job in 2010 and and was about to get married and i told my family that i'm quitting my government job and starting a company and they were shocked they were like <laughs> this guy has gone insane and doing these kind of stuff but somewhere i think getting starting a business is the best way to learn about it you can read books you can yeah. join courses but if you really want to enjoy entrepreneurship just start something 
and you will learn. Learn by doing. And yeah. learn by doing. <laughs> I think, I, you I, know, in recent times, we've seen a lot more cultural awareness and acceptance of taking the risk of being an entrepreneur. And it seems like every day, every year around the world is becoming more and more accepted or even encouraged. Like, I remember when I was visiting Singapore, maybe five, six years ago, they were just in that transition where all yeah. the parents in Singapore always wanted their kids to go to the uh, NUS and NTU top universe, like world-class universities. And they wanted them to go and work at HP and IBM and all these global companies that had a headquarter in Singapore. And it was like, what are you doing? Like leaving your great degree and then going to start a company that was like seen as a failure. But in the last several years, it's changed a lot there and, and really around the world. And now it's it's um, and now it's the cool thing to do. Even parents think it's cool that their their children are becoming entrepreneurs. So that helps as well. Oh yeah, it's there is much more acceptability and in, in especially in the in the developing part of the world because where there are a lot of these arranged marriages happen and then you need to convince the bridegroom family that you are working. So when you say you are having your own company, sometimes they look like like you are jobless. So <laughs> <laughs> so there is acceptability of that. Okay, thank you for sharing that backstory. And, and I fully agree the lesson you share, it's uh, learning by doing, uh, or uh, otherwise you will never learn. Now the story of iMob, which is internet of mobility. I mean, I really love this term uh, because it tried to capture, in one word, you try to capture the whole spirit of what you are trying to build. And you founded this company in 2017 with the vision of creating a global interoperable decentralized internet of mobility network. You started with a very global vision of decentralized world and all, but then you saw that the market is not ready at that time and you pivoted to build the centralized application. And in 2022, again, you decided to shift IMOB uh, toward decentralization and tokenization. So I, I really love the way you are converging, diverging, converging, diverging, because you're seeing opportunity in that way. So I'm curious to know about the backstory of IMOB and which user and problem do IMOB serve? Yeah, no, thanks. So start with IMOB and the name. Uh, as you said, it sort of tries to convey in one name a lot. And uh, I come from the smart city space where IoT, Internet of Things, is huge. And the, the idea in IoT is that you can have an unlimited number of sensors and data collectivity across static or mobile devices or things in cities and you can aggregate that data have big data and make better decisions that improves quality of life so the idea yeah. is that you have iot's about like capturing data from objects and things that allow for improved quality of life and it could be a range of things in cities and regions that could generate data around air pollution uh contamination um congestion, um, um, temperature, um, crime with video surveillance as an IoT uh, component. And so we wanted to apply that same idea to mobility and say, look, there's a billion and a half privately owned vehicles in the world. There yeah. are tens of thousands of shared mobility fleets in the world that each have their own walled garden apps. So you talk about a scooter company or a bike share company or a taxi company, and they all have their own apps. And they all have tons of thousands of vehicles. And then you have, of course, thousands of public transit services around the world. Um, and they're all disconnected right now. And our idea was kind of like with IoT, that you can actually connect devices and have a mechanism to 
access all that data and make things more seamless and better for everyone. Our idea is the same thing with vehicles. Why not mm -hmm. connect vehicles and, and services like parking and EV charging to an open network, IOM, Internet of Mobility, and then let different stakeholders access those services to offer to their users, their employees, or whatever. So that's been the fundamental vision of IMOB from day one, mm -hmm. that any user of any interface connected to IMOB could discover, combine in multimodal routes, book or unlock, and pay for any mobility service or vehicle that's connected to the IOM. So that's been the vision from day one. As you said, we started with a decentralized vision. The, the, the world, the markets weren't ready for that. I, I have, you know, people think this might sound good, but it's not always good. I have a tendency right. to be too early. Like when I talked about third whale, which we built green apps for green consumers in 2009, I mean, that sounds cool, but take that forward a second. In 2009, when the smartphones, when Apple and Android and BlackBerry just started opening up for third-party developers, yeah. all right, ask yourselves these questions. How many people in 2009 had a smartphone? Okay. How many people had a smartphone and cared at all about green? All right. How many people had a smartphone, cared about green, discovered IML, and downloaded it? And it was like a minute number. We were too early. And being too early, I heard someone say not too long ago, being too early is just as bad as being too late. If you're too early, oh, you yeah. can't make it. it. It won't work. It'll fail. It fails because you're too early or fails because you're too late. Well, I have a tendency in my career as an entrepreneur, I think because I come from academics and I, I'm good at identifying trends and where the world is going, I can sort of see it before a lot of people do. And then I'm like, I want to act on it, but I'm too early. So IOMOB as a decentralized global this, um, interoperable network, uh, blockchain and token based in 2018, when we really incorporated and we're trying to make this get started was just too early. Mm -hmm. Blockchain tech wasn't ready. So, you know, and, and for those of your listeners who are familiar with um, layer one and layer two in blockchain, there's these ways now to basically uh, enable data and transaction to flow through a layer on top of the core blockchain layers, because the core blockchain layers are too expensive and timely to process lots of transactions, like yeah. millions of transactions of mobility. So layer twos are about solving that problem. They didn't even exist when we started IMOB, and there was no way we could ever scale IMOB decentralized in 2018. Similarly, investors in blockchain were not ready for investing in this sort of application layer, if you will, because they knew better than I realized that the underlying technology wasn't ready for this kind of use case. And, you know, as you can imagine, and all your listeners are very well aware of the, you know, what the legacy operators in transportation and some of the sort of bureaucratic resistance to innovation and change, oh, yeah. right? Like imagine 2018 going to a transit agency and say, we're tokenizing this mobility platform and you need to stake tokens in the IOMOB network to then have your services available. Like, forget it. And we tried. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, man, this is not working. So we postponed it. And then we just started with a centralized approach, as you said. And we always, especially Josette, my co-founder and I, we always wanted to come back to the decentralized vision because we were always convinced it was the superior way to deploy this at scale. You yeah. either have if you will, the Uber example of like a walled garden and you own your services and, and they're starting to offer other third-party services. 
or you take an agnostic decentralized approach and say we're creating an open network of mobility services we as imob have no skin in the game regarding which service a user chooses yeah and therefore we surface through our journey planner the optimal journeys and and vehicles for that user for that journey at that time without any bias in our own regarding well we make more money if they choose our own branded vehicle because we don't have it so we always knew you either go uber raise billions of dollars have a walled garden approach or you go decentralized and agnostic and so it was always like bugging us that we weren't doing it and finally at the end of 2021 so a few months ago we had a coming together of all the executives and Joseph and I made the pitch that it was time to go back to our roots, our real core vision. And we pretty much got unanimous buy-in from the executive team to say, okay, yeah, it's time. Let's do it. So here we are. That's great. And uh, what problem exactly you're serving with IMOB, how you are trying to bring these mobility together? Yeah. I mean, you just said it. I think, you know, the, the fragmentation in the mobility space is really insane. Like we talk about choice as a great thing for users. I mean, a good example before COVID, there were 22 companies who had the license to operate scooter sharing services in Madrid. Okay. 22. That's 22. Now that's awesome from a choice perspective for yeah. a user, but what about from a user experience perspective, when you walk on a street, I want a scooter, I don't see one on the street, what do I do? Do I have to have downloaded all 22 scooter apps, open each one independently, find out which one is closest, onboard myself with my credit card and user profile? I mean, that's just insane. Oh, now, yeah. what if I'm the same user in that city and I know I wanna go from, I don't know, um, Park Retiro, this beautiful park in Madrid, to uh, some part in the north of the city. And maybe the best way for me to do that is to actually take a scooter to the public transit service. And then the last part of my leg, I can take a moped or I can walk or depends on the distance, right? Well, yeah. combining these disconnected walled garden services, whether it's public transit, one of the scooter companies, a bike share company, a moped company, and figuring that out myself, and you know what happens to users when they have to figure all that out? It's too much friction. So what do oh, they yeah. do? Call an Uber. That's a sign my problem because I know where I'm leaving and I know where I need to go and Uber will just get me there. Well, I'm not saying Uber's evil. I'm not saying we should never take Uber or taxis, but maybe it's even better for the user if they knew to yeah. take the scooter to the train. Like there's traffic and it's going to take you longer. Oh, and by the way, it's going to cost you eight times as much money to go that distance in Uber than it would to do this other journey. Um, so there could be really tangible reasons why from a user perspective, this is awesome to have this multimodal experience, but until you make it easy for them to do it, they won't. So that's the challenge we're taking on, but there's another layer behind this because we decided from day one, we are going to be an enterprise solution. And that means we support public and private entities who want to offer this seamless mobility experience to their users for whatever purpose. So yeah. there's another pain point we're solving that's not just for the end user. And that is, imagine if you are a public transit agency, or you're a rail operator, or you're a travel agency, or you're an airline, and you want to support door-to-door -door mobility for your employees, your customers, whatever, there's tens of thousands of mobility fleets around the world. There's all these uh, privately owned vehicles. There's all these public services. 
you're an airline. Yeah, you're good at optimizing butts and seats for your airline, but do you have any knowledge about how to go out, recruit, and integrate a bunch of disparate mobility services all around the globe and then support journey planning for it and all the rest? So the extra pain we solve is for enterprise organizations, public and private, who have a motivation to offer this door-to-door -door experience, or you know, maybe even less than that. We have clients yeah. who are thinking, what if we just add scooters? to our airline app. So when you arrive to a new destination, we can offer you a destination mobility service package. We're gonna offer you 100 minutes of scooter service for your three-day trip to Paris. And guess what? Because IMO integrates the range of service providers, it's not like a partnership with one operator. Yeah, IMOB could make that available where if there's eight operators of micromobility in Paris, they're all available to you. With your 100-minute package, you can choose any of them, which you can optimize your for the one that's closest to you when you need. So this is the pain that we're solving. Thank you so much for putting in in this way because now it's became much more clear. And I agree with you. It's uh, it's hard for agencies to deal with so many different players. So it's always good to find a, a a player who can deal with everything, and they don't need to create standards or APIs or integrate business model with all different kind of players. And I, I think every year we we are seeing uh, two new modes are being added in public transit or <laughs> in mobility sector. There will which be urban exciting, air mobility. Yeah, which is exciting too, but at the same time yeah. challenging. Like for exactly. user, how many apps you need to download? And uh, there was a study done which say that on an average, people have uh, 30 or 40 applications, but they use only three or four. Rest all yeah. are just idle in your phone. So does it make sense to download so many apps or you create these kind of uh, integration? In fact, we discuss about this, that there will be in future aggregators. So for travel, you will have one app. For food, you will have one app rather than having hundreds of apps. So thank you. So one, thank you. One, one comment on that. I think it's really interesting because our vision is aligned with that, but slightly different. So our view is that a lot of enterprise organizations that have millions of users of their existing app, whether it's an airline, a travel app, a taxi app, or whatever, a transit app, and there are reasons users use that app. Yeah. Our vision is to empower enterprise organizations to offer seamless, interoperable global mobility roaming to their user. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you're someone who takes the train a lot. Yeah. Uh, as a commuter, but also for other purposes. And you're loyal to the train company because um, you get loyalty points when you book through them and you get free train tickets when you book through them. Now, if we can supercharge that train app so that you can use that to travel door to door on the train, that's powerful. Yeah. But another step, which I am all enables by default, is that any user of any interface connected to IMOB can discover route, book, and pay any mobility service connected to IMOB anywhere in the world. So you downloaded this app in Toronto for your uh, Via Rail app because you use it a lot. If Via Rail authorizes this, the user could cross into the US, roam around the US, engage in rail and scooter services and taxi services that don't exist in Canada, that don't exist yeah. in the rail territory, 
But you could do all that inside the Via Rail app. And if Via Rail wants you to, you can also get loyalty points for that because maybe they want to learn more about their customers and how they travel when they're in and outs for a range of reasons. So what I'm saying is we don't believe at IMOB there's going to be, I mean, that that's Uber's play. We don't believe that there's one app that people will use to travel the world. We believe for a bunch of reasons, there will continue to be fragmentation of transport apps. Every transit agency wants their own app, right? Um, yeah. Every rail operator wants their own app. Every airline wants their own app. And there's arguments they all should have their own app. Well, if they all have their own app, why can't they all be supercharged by a global mobility network so they can connect to our network and turn on this capability so that whatever app you prefer, because you're a rail customer, an airline customer, a delivery service customer, and they give you benefits you like and you use it a lot, you can turn any app into a seamless global mobility roaming app powered by IMOB. So that means over time, our vision is, there could be thousands of apps around the world that all allow the user, for whatever reason that makes sense for the user and the enterprise, to travel freely around the world without having to download a new app every time they travel somewhere else. Yeah, that's amazing. It's basically giving people more localized and personalized service. At the same time, they don't need to jump from one app to another. So they use whatever they're using. But in the back end, you make changes. So on the front end, they don't see all these things changing. But on the back end, you can power the app. You can integrate those options. So exactly. on the front end, if they're using like VRL apps, so they will keep using VRL, but they can access to many more services when they move out of Canada, when they go in state or go in Europe, but they can still use their app. So at that time, they don't need to change their payment method. They don't need to change their, like you said, mobility exactly. points and all. So you keep running. That's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. That's why I ask and spend a little more time on this because it's important to understand what, what IMOB is trying to solve and what is the future of, I really love what you said, uh, IoT and IMOB. So I think in future, everybody will be using this term as a, as a Xerox. Uh, so for copy, we use I Xerox. <laughs> If you or your listeners are, are, are remember this, um, there used to be a big campaign from Intel called Intel Inside. And it was their effort to sort of differentiate computers built with an Intel chip as there were more AMD and some of the other competitors came to the market. And yeah. the average user buying a computer had no idea which computer was better and what, what Intel did. And so they try to really make it stand out that if you have an Intel Inside, that it's a better computer. Yeah. So our vision is the IOM Inside. That okay. <laughs> over time, thousands of different organizations for different reasons will plug mobility into their app. And the apps that have plugged mobility from IOM, IOMOB in their app have these advantages for the user, that global mobility roaming, the one user ID, as you said, and many other benefits. So yeah, that's the direction we're going. Great. Looking forward to that and wish you good luck in your journey. Thanks. So now I want to discuss about blockchain and crypto, which are the hot buzzword, like you mentioned in technology right now, everybody's talking about blockchain, Web3, crypto. So technology is not new. Bitcoin was launched in 2009 and became more mainstream during pandemic. And I'm curious to know what has changed now, like why in last two years, things suddenly changed and it became more and more mainstream. And why do you think there is no going back? Sometime what happened, we see a lot of these trends coming in like dot-com boom but then suddenly they disappear. Personally, I'm 
became very curious about blockchain and crypto while doing some research about blockchain gaming. I never thought uh, the blockchain can be used in gaming, but when I learn about it, I I blown away by the the use of technology. Uh, but I'm curious to learn from you is like, how do you see that the blockchain and this distributed ledger technology will change the mobility sector? Yeah. So definitely there's no going back. Um, you know, some people say web one was about read web two was read and write. So you could yeah. like post blogs and stuff. Web three is read, read, write and own. And even if you go back to the gaming example, you just brought up. Like one of the disruptive things blockchain has done to gaming, and I'm not a gamer, but it's really curious, is, you know, the whole NFT thing and that you can own an avatar, but you can own things the avatar possesses. Yeah. Well, that in itself doesn't sound that exciting. But when you start thinking about the ripple effects, instead of like my daughter who uses Roblox and she buys stuff all the time, uh, she's like a monthly subscription. Um but she doesn't own any of those things. If she ta- she starts another game in the, in the metaverse or in another blockchain, she can't bring that stuff with her. Um, if those things appreciate in value somehow because there's more demand for them, she doesn't get any benefit of that value. Whereas in blockchain gaming, you do. You own these things. They become yours and you get to actually benefit from the value appreciation. And you also get to take them with you yeah. to other platforms and that's totally new and so when you start thinking more broadly about why is blockchain starting to become so disruptive to so many industries it's changing the way we govern our economic systems it's changing the way we distribute ownership of those systems and you know if you have the chance to be a co-owner of something and an appreciation of the value accrues to you as a contributor of value, if you get a chance to influence how the ecosystem is developed because you are part of a decentralized autonomous organization for that ecosystem and you get to vote with your tokens or whatever, um, it's super empowering. I mean, going to another example that I love is like what we're starting to see in art and music where like, you know, People like make fun of NFTs as just this like, you know, glorified uh, graphic files. Yeah. But there's some really fundamental differences around NFTs for an artist, right? Like the most fundamental goes back to this rewrite and own thing. Like if I'm an artist and I contribute an NFT to a open sea marketplace and I can put into the sale process that I receive 10% of royalties every time it's sold again. So the artist can sell it once, yeah. But as we can think about in the history of men and women, you know, very few artists have been really respected and valued in their time. And historically their value really accrues after they're gone. Yeah. Or at least over time and they built much more of a brand and they're more well-known, right? Like the very first Banksy, when it first came out, no one knew who he was and it was probably worthless to most people. Um, That's not true anymore. So the point being, if you can bake in these sort of royalties indefinitely, it could be empowering for the artist. So it's the same kind of thing across every industry. Now, now, Now let's talk about mobility and why we believe blockchain is appropriate in mobility right now. So going back to a point we discussed earlier around the wall garden model versus the um, sort of decentralized agnostic model is if you were 
let's say a scooter company in Toronto, and I came to you as uh, some major taxi company with an app with tens of millions of users, and we have our own scooter service as well. Yeah. But we want to yeah. add your scooters in. We're a web to um, walled garden company. How comfortable are you connecting your scooters to my app? I have tens of millions of users. That's great. We can optimize your fleet utility by giving you exposure to our users. Okay, that sounds good so far. All right. We're, we're doing an open introductory offer. We're only going to charge 2% of every transaction we generate. Oh, wow. That sounds great too. Yeah. Okay. So far, so good. All right. Now, if I'm that operator, what protection do you have as a small scooter operator startup that I won't, A, increase the transaction fees later after you've kind of gotten sucked into my service because we're driving all this revenue and now you don't want to disconnect your service because you've got all these users using it that way. So what protection do you have? Zero is one answer. And what about, what if I am this big taxi company and I have tens of millions of users? What if I didn't even have a scooter service yet? Yeah. But I learned from all the data I'm getting from your scooters booked through my app. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a great business here. I'm going to come in and undercut them. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm not just going to like increase the cost. I'm just going to remove them from my network. I don't need them anymore because I'm going to replace them with my own. So our vision is the only way this works at scale is decentralized, where there's no single monopoly entity that can do this, that can remove your right to operate or can impose extractive fees on you. So un underlying everything is that. There's another element here, which goes to this point of co-ownership, which is that as a scooter operator in Toronto, you could get tokens, you could earn tokens in IMOB. And that allows you to have governance influence over decisions that are made in the IMOB ecosystem that could benefit your business and the, and the ecosystem. So, you know, going back to like a, a taxi service, let's any ride hail operator, Lyft or Uber and all the rest, we've all heard the stories that they sometimes have sort of extractive fees on users, on, on drivers yeah. and on users. We could talk about both surge pricing and what that does. But on, on drivers, for example, um, they don't have a voice in the fees they pay. Um, and if Uber decides to uh, remove them for whatever reason, they can. Um, they can charge a higher fee and Uber can do that. Um, Uber can pull them off the platform. What, what if, and this isn't to pull out Uber because this could happen from any of these companies, right? Yep. Bolt, Uber, Lyft. What if they make an investment in autonomous vehicles as they all are looking to do. And some of the drivers go on strike. Yeah. Well, they're not organized labor. And in many markets, Uber could just, or Lyft or Bolt or Kareem or whoever could just like, let them go. They're gone. In fact, most of them aren't even employees because by law in many markets, they're not even employees or contractors. So they can just let them go whenever they want. You know, so the point is, the Web2 economy has really been extractive and has exacerbated income inequality for the participants of these ecosystems. And what decentralized approaches enable is more read, write, and own so that the people who contribute to the value creation of the ecosystem have influence over governance yeah. and ownership over the ecosystem. And that can be fundamentally different.
Now, that's a great point uh, you mentioned about uh, the ownership. And in fact, we will be discussing some of these points in more detail. But I, I agree with you. That's a worry with a lot of these public transport agencies is uh, what will happen if I share my network and open up my network with other players. My passenger will go away or, or I will lose control over them and all. But I think with decentralized technology, they can continue to have control uh, over their data and they share what is required. So nobody need to fear because it's, it's done in a transparent way. It's done in an open way. So you don't need to worry what's happening in the back end because everything is open to all the players in the front and nobody can take away data from one to another for their advantage or disadvantage. So, so I agree with you. It will, I think with the decentralized world or blockchain, it will try to bring more transparency into the system and mm -hmm. uh, reduce complexity in the front end. So there'll be more complexity in the back end, but in the front end, it will be easier for everybody, for user, for operator, for player, to work seamlessly in the back end, they can they can manage stuff. Agreed. Great. Now I want to discuss about mass because that's what you are looking to build. Uh, you are looking to build this mobility as a service application with global roaming and all. To be honest, we haven't seen any major success in this area till now, both from adoption side as well as funding side. Uh, total funding in mass application, including big one like MoveIt, is less than $200 million. And similarly, there are not even five applications that can be labeled as a true mass. Most of them are journey planner and all. They haven't able to kind of break that, like the wall you mentioned. They haven't able to do that to bring everything together. So recently I was talking with a mass expert. He said, you can't even count five app, which has all the feature, the payment and integration and all. Why are you more optimistic about this decentralized mass? Like why you feel that's the future and that's where the world will come together. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we haven't seen a scale yet. I'd say, you know, there's, it's also worth recognizing that we're in the early days of of a transformation of an industry, right? And yeah. it's an industry that has a history of not being super innovative, uh, especially when you bring the public sector in. And you're trying to encourage collaboration across an ecosystem who's distrustful of each other. Private operators don't wanna share their data with public operators. Public operators don't like private ones because they feel like they're taking uh, users away from more sustainable shared uh, public transit systems. Um, private operators don't trust their other private operators because they compete and they don't want to be on the same plot. I mean, there's a bunch of friction here that has to be resolved. You have all this fragmentation, as we've discussed already, which means yeah. to make a seamless experience across a growing number of modes, as you already talked about. I mean, soon we'll have urban air mobility in places, whether we, we think we should or not, in scooters, bikes, mopeds car sharing, peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, B2C, um, dynamic DRT systems, yeah. you have traditional public transit, uh, then you add in parking and EV charging, and you have car leasing, you have all these different things that are happening that are all different ways of thinking about new mobility and legacy mobility and how they seamlessly integrate. So there's so many complexities around this. Technologically, I don't feel, you know, having been doing this for four years now, I don't think the technology is the biggest barrier to making MOS scale. I think it's more resistance from different stakeholders. It's buy-in from them. 
it is a bit on user experience, right? Because you got to get that right to actually make it worth the while of users. Yeah. I will also say, this is our opinion, and it's why we did our company this way from the beginning. You know, doing a B2C company on a global scale takes billions of dollars. I, uh, like a year ago, I looked at the data on Uber, and I think they spend something like $2 billion a year on user acquisition. Yep. So if you're trying to build a Moss company at, at global scale as a B2C play, you have to deal with all these challenges I just brought up around the fragmented ecosystem and distrust and all the rest. Um, and then you have to find a way to attract billions, not the millions you already named in the start of this question in terms of how much money's flowed into the space yet yep. to actually acquire customers and get them to change their behavior towards a seamless multimodal app. So what we decided is, as I've discussed earlier, but I didn't address this point of it, that we were going to go after the enterprise market that already has millions of users of an app. And what we're going to do is supercharge their app or their web or their kiosk uh, with a middleware solution that can be plugged into their existing offering, whether they're an airline, a travel agency, uh, a transit agency, uh, a taxi service who wants to offer multimodal, doesn't matter. Our vision is the way to make this scale is to not impose a B2C walled garden mass vision, mm. but instead an open agnostic network of mobility services that enterprise customers can pull on for whatever reason. Go back to an example I gave earlier. We're having discussions with airlines who are interested in like offering a hundred minute package of micromobility in your destination. Yeah. If you book your plane, in fact, some of them are looking at the idea of offering it as like a free thing. If you book your flight through our web or mobile, we will offer you 50 free minutes of micromobility in your destination. Why would they do that? Well, right now, airlines pay healthy fees of commissions to travel agencies. And when you book through a travel agency, the airline doesn't get to know you as a user. Yeah. And they don't get to monetize more services on top either. How can they sell you uh, booking a rental or a hotel if they don't even know who you are? Guess who's monetizing that? The travel agency, the intermediary. So there are reasons why an airline might say, you know, we're going to offer 53 minutes of micromobility. All right. So why am I giving this example is airlines have millions of customers. Yeah. Airlines have their own use cases. And therefore, is what I just described, 50 minutes of free micromobility, how you and your listeners just define Moss? Definitely not. Moss is seamless, multimodal mobility with public transit at its core that you can discover out, book, and pay the services that are inside it. Um, and I, I support Moss. I'm not opposed to Moss. We're very active in Moss. My point being, um, part of the reason Moss hasn't scaled is there's this very black and white view of what is and isn't Moss. And, and it creates problems because that's not what every user wants or every enterprise who might benefit from some of these same kinds of technologies expect or want for their user base. So I think the industry needs to be more agnostic and more flexible about how different customers, enterprise will use this or end users will use it. I'll give another example. Uh, Brightline Trains is a is a new commercial deployment of IMOBs in, in the States. They're owned by okay. SoftBank. They're a really interesting private rail operator, amazing rail experience. And they want to offer this seamless mobility for their users for a bunch of reasons. But they also noticed 
they did research and discovered 40% of all their bookings happen from people who have a car and want to drive and park. Well, tell me a public transit agency who's totally opposed to supporting park and ride. I mean, that's a very valid use case. But in the moss industry, we have this dichotomous thing that cars are evil and you can't have private cars in a moss deployment because that's not what moss is for. Moss is supposed to be about getting everyone out of cars and yep. in the multimodal. Well, I'm all for that too. But you can't like impose your values on everybody and assume they're just going to on their own change. Some people, for whatever reason, want to drive their car to a train station. Well, that's way better than them driving their car from door to door. They're driving oh, to yeah. train stations, <laughs> then they're taking sustainable mobility. So IMOP incorporates the use of a private car in multimodal door-to-door journeys. So with Brightline, you could take your car. We will tell you how much it would cost to park. You can pay for parking in advance. You park at the station. You take the train. You book that in advance. And maybe you didn't book your last mile yet because you think you're going to do micromobility and you don't know which service is available at the time you're going to get to the train station. So you pull out the app and you can dynamically book your last mile scooter. And you can do that whole thing in a seamless experience. My point being, we can't impose a single definition and a okay. binary view of what is and isn't Moss and then assume and, and then challenge why Moss is not succeeding at scale. If that's what we define as Moss, it isn't succeeding at scale because it's too inflexible and is imposing too many value assertions on users and assuming they'll change everything they do. And what we need to do is meet users where they are and make it easier for them to engage in modal shift, but in ways that accommodate what they want, not what we want them to do. Yeah, no, that's an amazing point you mentioned about changing behavior and it's not easy tasks and you cannot force people to change their behavior. What you need to do is you can nudge them, but you need to yeah. adjust and adopt to what people are looking. In fact, one mass application in Australia, they have included the fuel station uh, yeah. information within the application because they feel like those who are using public transport also own cars. So they want to know where I can find a cheaper gas. So <laughs> it's, it's the sure. option. And, and to be honest, a lot of mass application now incorporating the parking feature. And I think it's mass. You cannot just tell people not to use it, but, but you can encourage them not to use more. You can encourage yeah. them to use less. Uh, thanks for sharing that point, Boyd. I agree with you. It's uh, We need to be much more flexible. And today's world, we cannot be rigid and inflexible saying, okay, if, if you are not doing this, you're out. If you are doing this, you're in. Because then, then you are creating a very black and white world. And I don't think we are living in a black and white world. We are living in a much Thanks. more <laughs> lively world. So now, in fact, uh, my next question is follow up to what, what we just discussed. So we are, we are seeing, and like you mentioned, we are seeing a lot of uh, emergence of white uh, label mass application, which are offering API and S SDK to other player, uh, which is make, to make it much easier for people to create and integrate services. In fact, uh, iMob, I think you have a largest uh, uh, API links, you are providing 7,000 MSP, which is mobility service provider across eight uh, modes uh, in different parts of the world. What is MSP? So I want to understand what do you define as MSP and what will be the role of these MSP when these deployment will happen? How these MSP will keep working? You gave some example about uh, how the, the different scooter companies and then can work together. But when you are including 7,000 MSP, how will you, how they will work together with each other? Yeah, to be clear, we have 
probably even more than that. But a lot of those 7,000, for example, are like part of aggregated APIs we have. So like uh, we work with taxi aggregators that aggregate thousands of, of fleets. Uh, so each one is technically an MSP mobility service provider. So if they're a, a taxi fleet in, in uh, Berlin, uh, and they've been aggregated by a taxi aggregator and we've integrated them, then they're part of our ecosystem, our network. But it doesn't mean that we have independently integrated 7,000 of those. It's part of a global network of, of suppliers. Some are direct, yeah. like we have Bolt and Tier and Voy and some of these other big players, especially in Europe, that are directly integrated into the network. But some, many of the others, especially in the taxi space, are part of an aggregated API that we've received from taxi aggregators. There's a bunch of them like Carhu and the Good Seat and um, oh, many others um, around okay. the world. And we've got several of them. Um, so for us, a mobility service provider is a, an entity that has vehicles or potentially services like uh, parking can be an MSP, a mobility service provider as well. Um, so an MSP is a, a service provider within the mobility space that can deliver us an API that allows us to integrate them into our network so that they can be discovered, routed, booked, and paid for by any user of any interface connected to IMO. So what's in it for MSPs to connect to IMO is something we talked about before. It's about optimizing fleet utility. And if so think about that, like if you're a small taxi operator, I mean, there's some really cool like underlying impacts of this example I'm about to give. Imagine yeah. Sue has a fleet of 10 taxis in Barcelona. Okay. You fly to Toronto from, you fly to Barcelona from Toronto. You pull out what app when you get to Barcelona hmm. and whatever app you pull out, what are the probability you would ever discover Sue's taxis? Now, what if whether Sue has a taxi, uh, an app or not is a different question. Even if she did, you're never going to find it and download yeah. it and onboard it for a three-day trip in Barcelona. It would be like, who would do that? Yeah. Um, but realistically, you're not going to discover it. Now, imagine Sue's taxis are plugged into the network of IMO. And you're using any app via rail, let's go back to that example, and you get on a plane to Barcelona, and because our technology is interoperable by default, you take your via rail, you get to Barcelona airport, it says, welcome to Barcelona, did you know we have 18 mobility services at your disposal in Barcelona, you're like, wow, how does via rail do that? Well, via rail is a Canadian rail op, well, how would they even <laughs> pull that off? Well, they didn't, yeah. I am all did for other reasons, but, but all our customers get the benefit. So if Sue's taxis are in IMO and you're now, I don't know, at the stadium, the Barca stadium, and you're going to leave and you're looking for a taxi and there are none because it's crazy after a game, it's hundred thousand seats, a hundred thousand people. Yeah. What if Sue has a taxi available two blocks from you? Uber or Cabify, Uber's big competitor in Spain, has the nearest one 20 minutes from you. Yeah. All right. Odds are you have Uber on your phone and you pull out Uber and you're like, oh, well, 20 minutes, I might as well. I don't have a choice. What if the VRL app exposed for you that Sue has a taxi two blocks from you? What did we just do? We just created inclusive economic opportunity for Sue and her oh, drivers yeah. 
that they wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise because they could never afford to spend the money to try to acquire you as a user when you're coming for three days. That's insanity. Yeah. It's not going to. Okay, so that's one thing. Secondly, we just optimized the transportation ecosystem in, in Barcelona because instead of you calling an Uber that's 20 minutes away and going to add the congestion on their journey, you optimized your journey for a vehicle that's near you so there's no congestion contribution. And thirdly, we saved you 18 minutes. Instead of waiting 20 minutes for the Uber, you're waiting two minutes for Sue's taxi. So there's all these ripple effects of benefits by creating a seamless, open, agnostic mobility ecosystem. I would even argue for Uber, it was better for Uber that you took Sue's taxi. And why is that? Because Uber doesn't monetize much of the journey that driver's taking by himself, oh, yeah. getting to you 20 minutes away. And probably 30 seconds later, somebody else is going to call an Uber when Uber is the best vehicle for that user. So it's just better for everyone. And that's the tackle. That's the task we're tackling at scale. Yeah. I mean, a lot of blockchain advocates uh, talk about this. And I also believe in that is real democracy and level playing field for everybody. So making exactly. everybody equal in the nodes and making giving everybody equal opportunity, like you mentioned about this example. And I, I love your example because it's a perfect way to explain what technology should do rather than creating these monopolies or, or in, in fact, these monopolies are also bad. Like you mentioned, the driver is not monetizing his trip. He is trying 20 empty, 20 minutes empty ride because he will reach there. He'll not feel happy because he's not getting for those 20 minutes. In fact, he can stay there and probably get a ride in next 30 seconds which will be much more economical for him. So thanks for putting that example. And I, I agree with you. Uh, it's much better now to, to use these technology to giving equal opportunity to everybody in the market. Now, my next question is that you mentioned about these app and super apps. So uh, recently there was a news by Uber that they are going to integrate uh, many more options in their app. So train tickets, public transport, flights, hotel, food, et cetera. So they will they will become like a super app. We already know there are super apps in, in Asia, like uh, Grab and Gojek and all. Do you think these super app as a threat or opportunity for public transport as well as for IMOP? Like, do you think they will control the market or they will actually help other players in the market? I think it depends on the super app and the ambitions behind the company that's driving it. I think it's a little risky for transportation operators like Uber in terms of the potential they have, and we've seen that with data, to um, go reverse on the modal shift we're aspiring to and get more people to take uh, taxis for three minutes. What, I think I've seen some data not too long ago that in the US, something like the average Uber trip was like less than three miles. And you know that's within range of almost all kinds of shared mobility services, whether it's public transit or whether it's scooters or mopeds or yeah. many other things that are much greener uh, options for users and less impact on the congestion and, and contamination and the rest. Um, whereas I think for other, and part of the reason I say it's a little more risky when it's a transportation operator is that they are, by default, if they're web two, you know, venture backed, they're profit seeking by nature, and that's fine. That's what they're supposed to be. Yeah. So if they make more profit on you taking an Uber than taking a train, 
And if they get more and more people like you and me to use their app instead of the transit app, and they present journey plans for me that are biased for their profit, not for the, the benefit of the ecosystem or the planet or whatever, it could be that over time, they actually facilitate more reverse modal shift mm -hmm. because they incentivize and encourage you as they suck you into their app to use their app for more and more things. And you're less likely to actually choose the more sustainable and shared mobility option because it's not in their best interest that you do. So I think that's a risk with them. Whereas with other types of super apps where they don't have skin in the game directly because they don't operate a transport service directly, or they don't offer competing ones like okay. an intercity rail company like via rail or Amtrak or Brightline, our client, you know, if they want to add first and last mile services and the rest, I see less risk of that type of super app being um, a challenge to our objectives as a society and as transit agencies. It, it's more likely it'll get more people to take transit and shared mobility if if those are the types of super apps or super apps like, again, of delivery services or fintech companies or, you know, a range of other companies who might want to offer mobility as an extra service. If they don't have a direct skin in the game to convince you to do modal shift to something that's not maybe the most desirable, then I think that could be a good outcome. And, okay. and that ties into IMOB in the sense that the in terms of do we see what Uber is doing as a threat or an opportunity? We see it as a direct opportunity for at least two reasons. One is our clients are trying to create their own type of super app. And one of the reasons they want to is they want to better know their customers and find ways to monetize them more and offer them a better service. And when they see Uber doing that, they're like, oh, that's a threat to us. If we want to own the user and they want to own the user and they're starting to sell my services, my rail service on their app, how am I going to get to know my customer and better offer them better service? I'm not going to. So it's encouraging them to come to IMOB to say, how can we be competitive with this kind of offering from Uber? So that's one thing. And I think, you know, there's, there's actually several others, but I'll, I'll leave it at that so that we can move on to the other questions. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for sharing. And I think this actually remind me of example of Amazon. So Amazon has control over their, their stores. So they are using third-party data to, actually promote Amazon basic product and all. So you're right. Yeah. If there is, if you're a seller as well as a platform, it, it, there is kind of a very thin boundary where you can play both the roles. So I agree with you yeah. and we need to see. Yeah. Well, sorry. sorry. One quick comment about this. When you, you also pose a question from the perspective of a transit agency. One thing I think is interesting is most transit agencies, there's a big black box around multimodal. What I mean by that is if they don't offer MOS-like experiences, they have often zero knowledge about what modes people are taking to go to and from public transit stations, often yeah. zero. Yeah. Unless they do surveys or something, and even those, those aren't very trustworthy and they're not the most efficient way to figure that out. And this goes even back to the question of profitability. So if you measure MOS, if you think of MOS the more classical way, like a public transit driven multimodal system, one of the reasons to do that has nothing to do with profitability, which of course in the public transit system is rarely a big motivation anyway. Um, it's to better understand the transportation ecosystem and to improve it. 
So if we discover through having our own transit moss-like experience that you know 35% of all journeys on our on our uh, metro are actually combined with a first and last mile micromobility service, that's really interesting. Yeah. And what if we discover that I don't know 18% of users are doing this insane journey to get to um, certain transit hubs because there's clearly not enough provision of alternative ways to solve first and last mile. Maybe we should even encourage or subsidize. I know this sounds crazy, but I don't think it is. Subsidize private shared mobility services to come and fill the gap so we can have yeah. more sustainable journeys, get more people to choose transit as part of their core journey because they don't have to take the car the whole way because we've solved a big pain on their first mile. And I do think what's coming, and I bet most of your listeners are well aware of this point, but account-based ticketing models oh, yeah. with fair capping, where a user under certain conditions could be subsidized, their, their first and last mile in private shared mobility services could be subsidized. In Barcelona, last I knew, the city spends something like 3,000 euros a year per bike in their public bike share system. Well, that's a lot of money. And what if some of that money they spend on public bike share could also be offered to subsidize private shared mobility services? For example, in areas where bike share is not the best service or doesn't exist or whatever, and under a fair capping system with ABT, you could make that happen. All these kinds of use cases for a transit agency powered with a MOS type experience have nothing to do with profitability, but they have a whole lot to do with improving the functioning of the transport ecosystem and enabling more inclusive mobility for everyone. So I think there's a lot to uncover here. Yeah, no, I think what the point you mentioned, I know a couple of agencies which are doing that in Europe, especially that they are combining the last mile and they are actually subsidizing the last mile trips and uh, tying up with these private player and providing that system. So basically with this uh, model of uh, not only spending money on maintaining a huge infrastructure, you're partnering and sharing revenue with others and, and making it's more inclusive as well as more sustainable. And I think uh, that's that's what more important is. You cannot spend billions of dollars, especially after COVID when the budgets are low and, and you have to be innovative and all. Thanks, thanks, Boyd. I really, really uh, enjoyed what you're mentioning and the examples you're giving because that's giving me a real life perspective rather than you know, thinking just from the theory point of view. So I love how you're putting your theories into practice. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and now I want uh, you to share something which is, a, which is a difficult topic for a lot of people because it's very new. It's called DAO, uh, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, because uh, especially in public transit world, I don't know many people are aware about what DAO is and how it works and all, but it's becoming more and more popular. And it's also gaining a lot of traction because you see as an opportunity that all stakeholder has stay in the organization. So like you mentioned, the user can tell or the driver can tell whether we want more commission or we want less commission and how much is that. So can you share a little more about uh, what DAO is in simple word? Because I know you can, you can put things in a very easy way. And what do you think is the potential of DAO in mobility sector? Do you think DAO will be important for decentralized mass? Yeah, no, I love this question. And I think this might be the first time or one of the first times 
anyone in a podcast will have ever asked that question or heard an answer to it. <laughs> DAOs and mobility have not really been discussed in public forums yet. Um, same with NFTs, which we might talk about, and yeah. the metaverse, which we might talk about as well. So there's a lot of fun places we might go. But on the yeah. DAO, so a decentralized autonomous organization is basically an entity. It's like a co-op with a smart contract supporting it um, in the sense that a DAO is basically owned and governed by the members. And in this case, to be a member of a DAO, you normally have to have a, a token. And the token is usually a native token to that ecosystem. So IMOP will have our own token called the IOM token, Internet Mobility Token. So any user, anybody who's acquired tokens will have the right to vote and govern and co-own the IOM ecosystem. Now, you can go into much more depth than we probably want to today on, for example, voting mechanisms. So in the DAO world, there's a lot of debate around, should it be one token, one vote, which is called token weighted voting, or should there be another model? And the reason people are wondering about that so much lately is because the one token, one vote feels a little bit too much to many people like the, the current economic system, which is flawed because it biases the whales. Whales yeah. in blockchain are those who have very large stakes in a project. So it biases towards them because if you do one token, one vote and you have 100,000 tokens and most people have no more than 10, then clearly you're gonna dominate the governance and the voting and the ownership of this ecosystem. So there are models emerging to sort of change the way votes, eligibility for voting. There's things called quadratic voting and other things. I won't go into detail on this, but your listeners might want us to look it up more because there are ways to make it more inclusive and democratized yeah. at, the, at the ownership level. But basically a DAO is an entity that governs the, the economy and the token and the distribution of that token of an ecosystem. So in the case of IMOM, and this is really fascinating, I think, um, we will have, by the end of this year, a DAO that manages 50% uh, of our token allocation, which means we're um, removing our ability to dictate how the ecosystem evolves and what are the next elements of our roadmap. And we're saying, you know what, we're gonna believe in the community that collectively the community will come up with better ways of solving challenges than we will. I'll give a real quick example of how this could be reality. Yeah. We have one investor we've been talking to for a long time, he's really interested, but he's like, you know what I don't like that you haven't solved what happens around incentivizing different actors for journeys booked when the journey crosses jurisdictions and there mm -hmm. could be more than one way to share revenue or token incentives across those jurisdictions i literally just told this investor a couple of days ago i hope he doesn't listen to this podcast but <laughs> um i said you know what? we've decided you're not the right investor for us right now and the reason i said he's not the right investor for us is he wants us to pre-bake all those decisions in right now and we ah. don't not because we're incapable of coming up with a decision that is how should revenue share happen across jurisdiction, but because we don't think we should. We think it should be the token holders, which will be ecosystem actors who have skin in the game and have their own viewpoints on this. 
and we'll let the community make the best decision for how this should happen rather than us impose it. And that's yeah. what a DAO is supposed to be for. It's that it's it's co-owned by the members who have influence over governance, who can make recommendations for how to improve the system and who can influence the system in very important ways. That's what a DAO is for. And one other, like, because to t your second question was, and it's role in mobility. Okay, yeah. so how is IMOB going to do it? And we, to our knowledge, are the first project of any kind, not just in mobility, of any kind in the world to design our ecosystem this way, which is IMOB is going to have a DAO. I'm putting it up at the top, but maybe it really should be underneath. There's going to be an IOM DAO that governs the global ecosystem that will be made up of global token holders of okay. the IOM token. And then we're going to have an auction. There'll be auctions for DAOs. They're, you could call them sub-DAOs. Territorially constrained sub-DAOs. So okay. a city like Toronto might have its own DAO. What does that mean? Is that we're further delegating governance and ownership of the ecosystem to local and regional actors who are way better adept than we are to govern that system, to animate that system with local and regional suppliers, um, to engage the local community. And what this will actually be is like a global network eventually of thousands of DAOs where each sub DAO has an influence on the global internet and mobility DAO. Okay. But has almost exclusive governance over their local DAO. When I say almost exclusive, is there still a role for the IOM global ecosystem? I'll give you a quick example. Imagine we have a DAO, uh, there's a DAO auction, and your organization wins the right to govern um, the local Toronto IOM ecosystem. Yeah, And you decide you're going to open it up to other stakeholders and there's some other people who also now own your own token. So you can, as a DAO, as a sub DAO, you can have your own token, which allows you to do nudging. Maybe you want to use your token to encourage end users in your community to choose more sustainable stuff. Okay, all great. But what if you delegated inside your DAO um, some power to an entity that is starting to do things that are unacceptable to the global internet and mobility community. I don't yeah. know. They're, um, they've changed, they, they, they've managed to distort everything and they're now getting people to take urban air um, taxis everywhere and they've eliminated scooters from visibility in the platform. So you, you kind of need to take their urban air, urban air taxi because like the only thing that you can use in this system. Well, there's a mechanism that we've designed that the IOM token holders can choose to basically withdraw your rights okay. to operate your local DAO, would basically kill the DAO, and then have a new auction for someone else to operate it because it's not being operated consistent with the values and, and, and um, expectations of the global ecosystem. So that's a super cool concept we've never seen anyone do, which is that there's a global DAO, and then there will be all yeah, these sub-DAOs all around the world. 
And we designed it that way specifically because we spent four years engaging with the global transportation community and realizing that imposing a top-down governance model, even though it's decentralized and the world could own the tokens and all the rest. I live in Barcelona. Yeah, I'm from the States. I've lived in Canada, as you said. I've lived in lots of places. What a, what, so what that I'm CEO of IMO? I'm in Barcelona. What do I know about the transportation ecosystem in Toronto and who the Very best true. actors are to join and govern the local system and what the latest regulations are and how you might want to nudge behavior in Toronto that could be different than in Barcelona? So that's how we came up with this model is that for this to work at scale, we need a decentralized governance um, to territories where, because we all know transportation is this kind of hybrid global local kind of thing, right? There are times oh, yeah. when you cross jurisdictions and there are many times, what is it? 90% of most journeys don't cross a jurisdiction. They're, they're local. So it's, we're trying to make the best of global and local and decentralization and, and DAOs. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Like you said, uh, it's a, it's a very new topic and people are still figuring out how to use it. Uh, and, and I love what you mentioned about creating a global entity, but at the same time, giving power to the local jurisdiction, because then they can decide what is good for them. And, and that's a problem I see with the more globalized companies because they take decision from one place, whereas the reality in the local city or local place is very different. So probably you have a different dis discount mechanism, probably you have a different fee structure. Uh, you have like recently somebody tweet Elon Musk saying you can charge $3 per month in developed countries, but uh, for Twitter, but uh, for developing country, that's too much. And he said, yeah, it has to be different. It should be yeah. on the paying capacity of that local region and all. And I think with these DAO, you actually can do that, which is not possible yeah. in a centralized model, much more decentralized way and all. So thanks for sharing that. And, and now you mentioned like we are going deeper into some of these interesting topics, Web3, Metaverse and NFT. And, and what I love is because you are not only sharing what these are, but you are actually doing some, some work in these technology. And I would be very curious to learn some of the practical life example. So my first question is, what is Web3? You briefly mentioned about uh, it's read, write and own. Uh, but I want to go a little more deeper into it because Web1 usually... We say it's basically user of early web consumer information primarily in a passive way. Like you said, just read, don't do anything, just read. And web two, we allow people to create, we allow people to interact with content like social media and all. But in web three, the main concept is you allow people to get back the control, like own your stuff. So own your material, own your paintings, own your design and all. So how will it affect the, the transit sector, if at all? Because a lot of people, don't know what is the difference of web one, web two, web three. So how does web three is going to impact the, the transit sector and, and why you think web three will be an important area for mobility player, as well as for rider can, can rider own their data and monetize it? Like how, how you see web three will change the whole equation and game. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, we're, we're so early, we're, we're really fairly early in blockchain web three as a society. Um, and we're only really recently over the last couple of years starting to see applied use cases of blockchain to industries and, and ways that might actually improve people's lives. Cause you know, the early use cases have been these layer one and layer two blockchains and they've been worth a lot of money. 
but they're like core building blocks for the later application layers that people will interact with. Then you started seeing decentralized finance, DeFi be the big thing. And that's still for a lot of people, very esoteric. It's like, you know, trading models and uh, liquidity pools and things that the average user doesn't ever experience. Yeah. And then we saw the boom of NFTs and the NFTs is probably the first sort of mainstream use case of blockchain technology in the sense that you're seeing more people come into blockchain who never were in it before, who don't know what DeFi is and don't know what layer one and two is, but they know what an ape looks like in this cool thing that I can own it and, and it's a digital art and whatever. Yeah. Um, so we're still early, which is awesome because I think the future, you know, I, I heard in a, a podcast not too long ago, I love this. I love this description. It's a woman, a CTO of a company, and she said, um, the hit, history is immutable and the future isn't written yet. So, mm. you know, we don't know where the future is going, but I can tell you some things based on your question that I think around mobility. So yeah, we've already discussed at length our vision of a decentralized web three internet of mobility network. So yeah. now I think the, the use case and the value proposition of that over a more centralized web two has been, you know, I think fully discussed by us, but then you ask about ID uh, identity. So decentralized identity is a, is another web three tool yeah. that allows people not just about maybe monetizing their data, which is one thing that you can do with your identity in a web three model, but also control how your identity data is used by whom, for what purpose, and when they have access to it. So, mm -hmm. and you can have that identity carried with you wherever you go and ported to whatever Web3 interface you use. So I could have a single tool for capturing my identity. And my identity could be everything I want it to be. It could be my PhD diploma. It could be um, my driver's record. By the way, I don't have a driver's license, so I don't have it. Um, it could be um, my um, online activity, how many t Twitter followers I have. Um, it could be um, economic bank records. Yeah. Okay. It could be all these things. And all these things are stored in my private identity file that I can carry with me wherever I go and plug into whatever I want. But it doesn't mean, let's say I did have a driver's license. It doesn't mean that, okay, I'm using a internet and mobility enabled platform and there's a car sharing service. That car sharing service needs to know I have a driver's license and I'm at yeah. least 25. Now I know a lot of your listeners, if they can see me would be, well, he's not 25. He's gotta be younger than that, but no, I, I'm, definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely older than 25. Okay. <laughs> So no, you look younger, you look younger. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my point being, um, I could have all this data about me. That doesn't mean that this car sharing service needs to have all that data. I yeah. have all this aggregated data about my person in a decentralized ID, and I can choose what data that that car sharing service can see about me to enable me to get that car unlock the car. So yeah, they need my driver's license, but I'll say something else that's really interesting. You could have a decentralized ID where there's a third party attestation that you have a driver's license, that you're over 25, yada, yada. And therefore, when I go to Toronto and I want to unlock a car share service with an IOM powered um, app, 
go back to via rails an example okay i'm using that app i want to unlock a, a car share it's quite possible that the car share service doesn't even have to see my driver's license hmm. they need to see the attestation from a recognized third party that says, yes, this person does have a, dri a valid driver's license and yes, they're over 25. So it's possible the car share service never even saw my driver's license. They just saw evidence that I have it and that's all they needed. So decentralized ID is very powerful um, as an example of a web three tool. And you brought that one up. And it's not just about monetizing my user data. It's about controlling my data and taking it with me and expanding what my personal data can be. Um, yeah. So that's a powerful thing that could be very useful for mobility, as we just described. I think we're going to see more NFT use cases in mobility. And you and I have talked about that um, off, off the record. Uh, we might talk about that here um, for a range of things. One of the coolest things I'm excited about we're going to do at IMOB around NFTs so I mentioned early in the call, there's at least one and a half billion privately owned cars in the world. Yeah. I believe the future of an internet of mobility network is not just plugging in APIs from public and shared vehicle fleets. It's allowing private vehicle owners to connect their vehicles to the internet of mobility network with a smart contract that allows them to say, okay, I only allow people who are over 25, who have a driver's license, have not had an accident in two years, um, you know, whatever my requirements are, an NFT can enable that. I can easily access an NFT, plug in the terms I want in a smart contract online, and I just turn my car on when I want it to be turned on at an airport or whatever, and I can turn it off when I don't want it on. And so when you ask about like the power of Web3, another thing for me, it's not just the NFT, but it goes back to sort of the ethos of decentralization and some of our other discussions on optimizing the transport network. You know, we know this, your listeners know this 95% of the time cars are parked. Oh yeah. Well, that's, just, that's just stupid. Um, and 25 to 30% of congestion in cities is people trying to find where to park. So, I mean, we have a lot of inefficiencies in our system. If you can enable privately owned vehicles and this doesn't just mean your car in your garage it could be like uh, what about all the used cars on a car lot that are for yeah. sale are just sitting there wasting they're depreciating in value and underutilized wasting land uh, a wasted resource why not plug those in with nfts because a used car dealer doesn't have an api for their private cars on their fleet allow those to be exposed why not a corporate fleet corporate yeah. fleets are not used at all on the weekends uh, why not plug those into the iom with an nft when you want um and there, what you're doing is you're adding all the supply to the IOM network so that they can all compete and collaborate to offer a more seamless user experience where the best vehicle for me right now is available to me. It might be your private car, it could be the corporate fleet car, could be a car share, could be a train, could be a carpool. Whatever's best for me, I will see the best options for me. And the better we can get like a, a global uh, supply network to be connected to this, the better it is. And one last example that will probably blow you away because this, <laughs> I think in, in 2024 ish, we'll start seeing these use cases with the IOM network. Yeah. If you are a last mile logistics company, all right, your, your vehicle drive, your drivers have usually one vehicle. They yeah. have a bike or a scooter or a car. They don't have everything. What if they don't need to have any car or vehicle? And what if IOM network? delivers to them the best vehicle for the journey they need to take. 
They need to go eight blocks to deliver Chinese food. Well, there's a scooter right outside. And maybe yeah. that's a fleet, a, a fleet scooter, or it's my private scooter that I leave out there with my NFT. It doesn't matter. Um, and then that same driver in the next journey, they need to go all across town to deliver a big box of heavy books. Well, they might need car share for that, but they only need it for an hour so they can pull on a local vehicle for that. So if you think about this at scale, if you really do seamlessly connect the world's mobility services to a, a, a decentralized network of mobility, you can empower so many amazing use cases that will make the planet greener, improve our quality of life and improve our transport ecosystem. Thank you so much, Boyd. I mean, I really loved all the three examples you mentioned and I never thought in that way. So thank you for, for sharing. And I think you rightly mentioned with, with these technology, it's possible, which was not possible. I mean, I remember I launched the first booking services, a car, car sharing, not car sharing, a ride sharing services for passenger in Delhi with one of the guy. And we use telephone and we use some device. We never thought the smartphone will come and then you don't need all these things. And smartphone will take away everything. And, and, and I think with blockchain now, what you mentioned, the delivery guy don't need to own any vehicle. He can pick his vehicle depending on what kind of thing he needs to deliver. So you don't yeah. deliver only food. You can deliver logistic packages. You can deliver cartons. And you can also deliver the small packages depending on them. And you can pick your vehicle. You can, you can draw from that and all. So thank you for sharing. I mean, it's really powerful. I mean... I can keep asking you to share more and more example <laughs> because it's, it's giving me a very different perspective. And I, like you said, the uh, future is not written yet, so we don't know how it will be, but uh, what it looked that there will be a lot of these things will turn into reality. And, and I'm looking forward to that. Now let's talk about NFT. You briefly mentioned about that, uh, that uh, I recently uh, was talking with one of the transit agencies and I mentioned to them that probably the transit agencies can sell NFT to make money. And I got a very weird look. Uh, I, I, and I know why, because they, they still feel it's, it's a crazy idea. On the surface, like you mentioned, NFT seems to be just a glorified image. We heard of news of people paying millions for boring app pick, you know, rock pick. They are charging millions of dollars and all. But uh, I would say you are the first one in the industry who has already launched NFT with Brightline train uh, with the public transit agencies and it's already live on OpenSea platform. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, this is uh, the one you are. Uh, and uh, you are already selling these mobster. I would love to know what, what these mobster story is all about uh, and selling 100 NFT uh, for, for them. But you have planned to hire local artists in 100 cities around the world and planning to profile local scenes and vehicle like you did for Brightline train and all. I'm keen to know more about this project, what kind of response you're getting right now. And how did Brightline train react to your idea initially? Like when you talk to them and say, hey, I want to sell NFT of your system, what was their reaction? And what is your overall vision for this idea? How you want to convince other agencies to do it? Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. It's you know, we're talking so seriously about very important things in the world. And then now I'm popping up some images of some mobsters in Miami, but that's part of it too, right? Like injecting some fun into transportation, into mobility, and also engaging a younger audience who are more sort of adept at NFTs and all the rest of it. Um, there are several reasons why we came up with this campaign. 
we call them mobsters because it's mobility monsters. And, it, okay. and what we're doing is drawing on local and regional animals. So first deployment is Miami because Brightline is based in Miami. So local and regional uh, animals, okay, local and regional vehicles, highlighting our clients' vehicles when our clients have um, you know, their own vehicles, because as I mentioned, not all of them do uh, when they have their own vehicle service. Yeah. Um, highlighting local scenes, trying to play off the sustainability image and using a local artist in each of the cities where we'll do this in, which as you said, over time, it's 100 cities, 100 NFTs per city. That's 10,000 NFTs over time. Probably going to take us at least a few years to do this because we want to tie it to deployments where the IOM network is being deployed around the world. Yeah. Um, as you said, we we engaged Brightline and you know you asked what the reaction was. I, I think what I would say is it depends on who I asked at Brightline. There was one of the, one of the people I love at Brightline. He's one of our uh, primary sort of collaborators. He said, "Don't talk to me about NFTs." Like, okay. didn't want to talk. <laughs> he's done with NFTs. He's heard about them enough. He's not interested in them. Didn't see the value in it. But then other people in the organization were like, "Yeah, this is cool. Like, would this make us the first rail operator in the world with our own NFTs?" Which I think it does. Yeah. Um, which is another reason we're doing it is to sort of help our clients gain prestige and brand and cachet by being early in the sort of blockchain and NFT space. Um, there's gonna be benefits of which I'm not allowed to entirely say publicly, but owners of these NFTs will get an airdrop later this year. And an airdrop for your listeners who are less familiar with them is a way a blockchain project can deposit something of value or not could be a benefit like for example access to in blockchain all the blockchain projects use something called discord discord okay. is like slack for your users if they know what slack yeah. is but it's for community engagement and um what's common with an nft and an airdrop is that if you own an nft you get some kind of exclusive privileges to get inside information about the project before others do um so it's like the NFT can be used as a ticket of entry to a privileged club by having one. Um, so this, these are all the reason we want to celebrate our deployments. We want to celebrate local sustainability, celebrate mobility and incentivize adoption and use by younger generations and, and help our clients um, tap into that um, yep. sort of new ethos around nfts and the excitement around it so those are all the reasons why we've done it and you know the response has been very positive you know as you say i think we're the first company in mobility to do this uh and we like being first so uh we're going to continue to do being first our next first is the first mobility company in the metaverse so that's coming soon too yeah that's that's my next question so, so <laughs> you know that's coming but uh for nft uh I love what you mentioned because I see a lot of these transit agencies, like I've been in London and in Singapore, in Hong Kong, they are creating a lot of these station art. Uh, I mean, if you go to some of these cities, they have such a rich history and they have created a lot of local arts, which is in a physical world exists. I mean, and I, I really see the value. They can monetize it by converting into a digital world. And I think, I mean, this is just a first project, but I, I see more and more adoption will happen and people will see the value because sometimes they don't 
see it so they don't believe it so now if they see this uh, and they can believe it easily that it's possible it's workable people are buying it and uh, and it's interesting it's like how to engage the younger population into the system so younger population like i have a habit to collect the the mobility smart card from all the transit system i visit so i have this uh-huh. habit i have more than 50 cards right now but uh, in future that's my so i already bought one uh but this is my future uh collection going to be uh the nft from around the world of transit network awesome <laughs> now let's talk about metaverse that's a topic which um, again i get a very weird look because people think metaverse is about virtual gaming and yeah. it's it done nothing to do with the real world and all which is uh, which is uh true but at the same time it's changing uh so what could be possibly have to do with internet of mobility what do you think metaverse will play a role and uh, because your focus is a real life transportation ecosystem you don't want to push people in the digital world i must say during my research i learned a new term which is called mta metaverse travel agency i never heard about this term i mean i'm so curious to to learn more about it because it's a it's a term if i knew first time i think many people who are listening to this they would have never heard about this so i am always looking to enable mtas in metaverse so you are trying to create more and more metaverse travel agencies uh can you share how it will work also i want to share like i'm a big time podcast listener and a big fan of balaji shrinivas and he's a he's a blockchain guru and he recently shared that how metaverse will change immigration policy as people can travel in virtual world so like in real world you need visas you need uh, work permission to travel in different country like you work in different countries so you know how difficult sometimes it it is to get all those permission and all but in metaverse you don't need any immigration permission you will be tomorrow teleport to usa or or in uk or in australia so how will you manage those digital crime in the space um, i was thinking about the ticketless traveler in virtual ttc network how will people control things in metaverse yeah um there's a lot to unpack here i mean i think underlying some of your questions and probably your listeners questions that are emerging is like what does real travel even have to do with the metaverse if the metaverse as you said is is a virtual environment of made up worlds and and the whole idea of the metaverse is you can freely travel around the world or around virtual worlds without actually getting out of your your seat um that's one view of the metaverse but i think you know there's growing i don't think i would call it a consensus because i think there are people that are even very deeply active in the metaverse that would not have the same view i do of what the metaverse is kind of like what we just described about moss like a lot of different def- definitions I I love gray. I'm a, so I believe entrepreneurship is all about managing in gray, not black and white. That there yeah. is almost nothing that is black and white in the world of entrepreneurship. You ask, I mean, look 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 at my example. I go pitch IMOB to 10 fund venture funds and I'll get 10 different responses to could we become a massive global internet of mobility or not and and 10 different reasons why we will or won't and 10 different strategy suggestions and none of them would be aligned probably yeah so that means there is no black and white in entrepreneurship which is why i love it and 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 i don't think there's black and white in moss and there's not black and white in what the metaverse is for me the metaverse is a 
digital digital technologies that allow humans to engage with each other and other objects and things potentially just for digital lives or that benefit their real life in the real world or IRL as we talk about yeah so if you think about like a metaverse that's like um, just a virtual world, like Sandbox is, is one of the best. Um, Decentraland, those are two really big metaverses that are virtual worlds only at the moment. And the only things you can buy in those, well, that's not true. I was going to say the only thing you can buy in those <laughs> worlds are digital goods, but that's not true anymore. You can now go to Sandbox, find see a sneaker on somebody's avatar, but it's like, it looks like a real sneaker. It's a Nike. Yeah. And you can click on that Nike and say, I want that as an NFT for my avatar. And I want that as a physical shoe sent to my house. And you can pay a hundred bucks or whatever it is. You earn the NFT for your avatar and you literally get a physically, um, the physical shoe to your size sent to your house. Yeah. In a, in a virtual metaverse of foreign lands that don't exist. So we're already seeing the blending of bricks and mortar commerce and web two and metaverse, even in the virtual versions of the metaverse. But I'm gonna share with you my favorite recent discovery over the last month yep. is a metaverse called um, the next earth. Hmm. The next earth is built to scale with satellite images of the real planet earth. I'm zooming out now, that was actually my house. In okay. Santiago, Spain. And as I zoom out, you see that I'm in Spain and I can travel anywhere in the world with this. Um, bringing in travel. I'm going somewhere. I, I'm not going to put your home address in. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but you probably don't want me to put it in on you. Um, you can see all these squares and the ones that are untaken can be bought as virtual. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So th the next earth sells virtual land ownership over real satellite images of the earth and their vision is to turn this into a platform as a service okay and what they mean by platform as a service is this becomes a digital layer of a metaverse that can then be used to enable web 2 and bricks and mortar and web 3 companies to engage with users in their metaverse to offer new kinds of goods and services or existing ones and use it as a new distribution channel. So let me show you something. So they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, I think it is, eight different yeah. what they call screen modes. So if you okay. go satellite street mode, you see the street names and, and the points of interest and things like that. Um, and then you can click on this one. It looks a little bit more like a, like a Google or Apple map. It's actually built on, on Mapbox. So it's okay. Mapbox mapping tools. All right. So I'm dropping on this podcast what would be called in blockchain an alpha. Um, alpha is giving your listeners first access to something no one else knows about yet. Yeah. And I'm only doing this now because I believe by the time this goes live... <laughs> The news will be official. It can be public. I hope so. Um, I hope. We're going to partner. I am always partnering with the next earth to add a new layer to this. And it'll be the transportation layer. 
So it'll be an extra, what they call screen mode. You click on transportation and what you'll end up seeing is something more like um, this, which is built by IMOB, which is our map of the earth with okay. transportation okay. ecosystems embedded. So we use uh, GTFS, GBFS, all these different sort of classical standard API or, or data um, sharing tools for public transit and rail service. The blue you see is uh, public transit and the red is rail. So these oh, are okay. like real um, networks, for example, in Europe. So it's look amazing. See... This is this can be sold as an art. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you should see our team has done that's super cool. It looks even cooler almost. Yeah. Is we have um heat maps, and we've never seen anyone else do this before. We can do heat maps that can show you from a point on the map to another point on the map how long would it take a user to get there using multimodal mobility? So we've seen heat maps for uh, like uh, public transit or for cars, yeah. but multimodal heat map, like, all right, well, maybe the fastest way is a scooter to a train rather than, you know, being stuck in an hour long traffic. And because we have all these vehicles connected, we can actually do a heat map that can model in real time, like, waves of how far you can go in a 15 minute city or 30 minute city combining different services rather than just relying on one mode. Um, so my point going back to what we're gonna do with the next earth in the metaverse is we also have um, our journey planner in this thing. So you can like pick out points on a map and then our journey planner will um, you know, automatically generate routes for people Right now, our journey planner only does inner city within the same country, but for the next earth, we're going to enable global journey planning. Okay. So you want to go from your house in Toronto to my office in Barcelona, you'll be able to put the origin address and destination address, see a range of options. Okay. And the metaverse travel agency. So because I am always enterprise um, digital layer of the internet of mobility network, we don't offer this to end user direct. We empower enterprise to do it. So we will enterprise web, we will enable web three metaverse travel agencies as well as airlines and other travel companies and other transport and whoever wants to, to offer a real booking experience where you can, as a user, visualize your journey in their metaverse before you book. It's like a preview before you pay. And oh. one of the most exciting things I think that we want to do together with them, because the next earth and I am all share a passion for climate action is if you think about it, like, let's say I'm going to go from Barcelona to Paris. Yeah. My, my inclination is I'm going to go to an airline booking site and book a flight. But if I go to the next earth and I have the option of different modes of getting to Paris from Barcelona, and one of them is a high-speed train, takes five hours. Yeah, the flight takes an hour and a half, but I still have to get to the airport. I have to wait at the airport. I have to go through immigration. I have to do all this crap. You know, most of the time airports are not near your urban area. So you have this travel to and from two different airports, which then adds more money because I got to pay for taxis. And because IMOB can enable a door-to-door -door journey plan, we can show you the whole cost of taking that journey and the time yeah. it takes the whole journey door to door. And if we could show the CO2, which of course a lot of people are doing one way or another to try to nudge the right behavior, that's fine. But what about the next step? 
What about, oh, I see that it would actually really take me four hours door to door in the plane. It's going to end up costing me 200 euros yeah. because of the taxis and all the rest. Ah, I could take the high speed train. Takes me five hours, but I get to go door to door. I I have uh, internet access. And well, let me see before I buy, what stops? What will I see along the way? So mm. in the next earth, because it's a satellite image of the real earth, what we can do is send in the geo coordinates of every train station that you stop in on this high speed train along the way and let the user like virtually um, go past each of these stations in the satellite version of the world. And we believe that visualization of that journey and the cool towns you might see um, and, and another way of seeing the carbon impact and the full journey time and the full cost of, of the journey, not just the plane, it could yeah. help nudge people to make more sustainable choices. So the idea is an immersive preview of a journey that you can book in the metaverse. And there's one last stop to this journey, at least that we're going to do together. I am already has this thing we call it a companion app. The companion okay. app allows a user to book a journey in a third party interface. It could be a travel agency, could be a separate app, could be a website, could be a kiosk. Wherever you book it, you can pull it into this companion app. And now the companion app has your origin and destination um, station or airport uh, information. So we now know that you're gonna depart at 10 a.m. at this day from this train station or this uh, airport and arrive at this station or airport at this time. And then we can help the user assemble their first and last mile around that and then solve their destination mobility service when they get there. And by doing this as a companion app, you can book in the metaverse. I mean, I'm using literally my laptop for this, right? Like. If I booked in the metaverse, I can't bring my laptop and have the scanned, um, my ticket scanned from my laptop yeah. very easily at the train station or the airport. So you can pull the journey in with your QR code or whatever into your phone and then manage your whole mobility journey um, in the phone because it goes with you. And with Next Earth, they want to collaborate with us to make those journeys um, carbon negative. So carbon offsets and other ways and there's another cool thing. I'm sorry, I'm probably <laughs> going too long. I'm no, no, blow but... away your listeners. Yeah. This is super alpha because nobody knows this yet. So hopefully it'll be uh, it'll be known, able to be known by the time we go live. Okay. Um, if you own virtual land, imagine you own in the next earth, uh, Sans train station in Barcelona. Any revenue that is generated by IMOM from transaction revenue, from you booking a journey, from somebody else booking a journey uh, from SANS in the metaverse, so we get a small transaction fee, we will be sharing that transaction fee either in the form of tokens or revenue with the virtual landowner of the train station in Barcelona. So it's this totally cool hybrid mixed reality, real world meets virtual world in the metaverse where revenue bookings and user experiences can more seamlessly travel between the metaverse and the real world and have hopefully real world climate impacts on top of it. That's amazing. Uh, what you describe, it's look, uh, 
it sounds so amazing to me and i would love to see when it will be coming live and see like like you can now own the stations like in real world i can't but uh, in virtual land i can i want to own a union station in toronto so uh, and anything coming in the in the virtual world you know you can make use of that and i think that's a real way of making it owned by people rather than owned by one institution and one agency and all and i think one other use case i see is in future people can and we discuss about this point many more time in the past is about having those carbon credit miles like if you can show that you instead of taking a trip by plane you must have emitted this much of carbon now you took that trip by more sustainable mode so it validate that you earn those carbon credit and in future you can tie up and you can monetize those carbon credit as well so I, I, to me it's look like uh, people actually will make money by traveling uh, and and making those journey so they can make more money than uh, <laughs> than taking planes and all hopefully now that that'll be great and i i wish you good luck with your with your launch with uh, next earth and all uh, and uh, like you said by the time we'll be in public it will be it will be available and i'll be the first user to check it out and see how this <laughs> how does it look so awesome. now i want to discuss about digital currency you talk about that point uh, quite uh, many number of time you mention that i'm a uh, tokens so a lot of people think that uh, bitcoin is the original currency or is the only currency in in uh, blockchain world but i think right now there are more than 5000 cryptocurrency and i'm probably i'm wrong because there'll be many more so i want to learn about uh, the token economics uh, you mentioned briefly earlier about that uh, imob token and how it will be owned by people not by not by imob it will be owned by the people who will be participating in this network uh, so how does this whole economic model will work and how can one transit agency pick one over the other so like there are so many these uh, tokens and application will emerge what choice the transit agencies can have to pick one over the other yeah so uh crypto uh, is exploding um the diversity of options that are available to retail investors in terms of investing in crypto and tokens um and of course as you say i think there'll be a growing amount of options for transit agencies in the transportation community regarding tokens that are directly tied to the transportation mobility ecosystem so you know first of all you know crypto is not there are some sort of uh very passionate people who are like die hard about a particular currency like you find a lot of they call them maximalists or maxis so bitcoin yeah. maxis or ethereum maxis who are just die hard about their currency um and sometimes for good reasons but in the end there's no requirement that a transit agency tries to pick one winner there's certainly ways they could collaborate with more than one and i think you know the word collaboration in the context of crypto is so profound by default the crypto world is way more collaborative than you would find in most traditional tech industries um so it's it's more likely that there will be ways to build off each other to combine currencies to leverage tokens interchangeably um you know if you look at the emergence of wallets for people to buy and sell and trade and 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 use crypto increasingly those are um becoming more interoperable across currencies and across token networks so you can sort of more 
fluidly as an end user, engage with any token you want. So I think that will happen. Regarding transit agencies, how they should proceed forward with a token model. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's tricky because you said it earlier, you know, there, there tend to be, you when you brought up how they react to your NFT idea, um, it's not easy to get a transit agency to get their minds around what's happening with tokens, token economics, and how to engage in that. And I think early on, in the case of IMOB, you asked about our token economics model, there's no requirement that the public or private agencies who engage with IMOP actually have to be savvy around blockchains or tokens at all. Um, we can sort of hide the complexity of blockchain and crypto from partners in the ecosystem who aren't ready for it. They don't have, yeah. they can just carry on their business as they usually do, settle transactions as they usually do. Over time, there will be more on-chain settlement, which basically means that when you have transactions aggregating between supply and demand partners and end users, over time, more of that could actually be resolved on, on chain, which, you know, increases trust and has a lot of benefits for the ecosystem. But if they're not ready, they're not ready. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, and a transit agency in the current version of our token economics model has no requirement to acquire tokens or be engaged in the token economy in a meaningful way. We think over time they will, um, and they will also accrue token benefits because yeah. we have this thing called proof of mobility services, POMS, and that's around validating that ecosystem partners have actually contributed to the growth of journeys being booked in the IOM ecosystem. And if you're contributing because you're providing services to the network, you're providing transit and people are booking that in the network, then you're helping contribute to the growth of the network. And that's great for everybody. It's a true network effect where the more supply is in the better it is for the demand partners the better it is for end users and it keeps going in a virtuous circle so we want to encourage that and that will include token benefits so a transit yeah. agency will actually accrue token incentives just for having their service available in the in the network um that doesn't mean they know how to handle the tokens right now <laughs> like do they have a wallet yeah. that they could receive those tokens how do they handle it on uh accounting and auditing and reporting so it's going to be a while until I think we see that kind of use case go mainstream where the transit agency is proactively engaged and involved in a token economy. But I think we'll start to see this year, whether the transit agencies know it or not, that they're actually involved in token ecosystems and they're involved in blockchain-based networks like IMOBs. Um, so it's coming. To, it's coming to a city near them and a community near them, whether they're aware of it or ready for it or not. <laughs> No, that's uh, that's a good point you mentioned about that. Uh, that it's it's their choice whether they want to get involved and go deep into that, or they want to see a little bit before before moving forward. And uh, and they need to create a basic infrastructure. Like uh, for for currency, you need bank account, but for tokens, you need a wallet. So you need to have those kind of infrastructure ready before even you move into into that area. In fact, my next question, and actually this is my last question, we we had so much of fun in, in discussion so far, but uh, I know it, it's going very long. Uh, but this is my last question. And actually it's about, uh, you're already working with many partners around the world. Uh, like you already mentioned about, you launch NFT collection with Brightline Trains in Miami. But can you share more detail about other key partners which you're working? And also from a transit agency point of view, 
what should be the first step if any transit agencies want to move into this area uh, any suggestion on the process because it it's not like tomorrow i wake up and say okay i want to do something there must be some process and there should be some preparatory work to to start in a hell and why i'm asking this question because um, a lot of agencies tell me that they are open to experiment they want to experiment uh, and uh, do pilots but they want to make sure that they can go back and revert back to the original situation quickly uh, they don't want to create any dependency if nothing if something doesn't work or if nothing work so in short they don't want uh, to get stuck because for example if they launch a blockchain wallet and they do it for 2 3 months and then suddenly they say okay there is no blockchain wallet anymore so what will happen to the user who adopted and all so how one can ensure that if they move decided to move forward there is an option for them to get back or there is no option to get back yeah yeah i could see why uh, transit agencies would feel it quite risky to to go all in on on a blockchain model early on and they're used to doing as you say pilots and staging in um transformation digital transformation um you also asked initially in your question around who we partner with already so um you mentioned brightline is a you know our first us commercial client we did an yep. initial project like a trial with ford in pittsburgh um this was a few years ago we did a trial with wellington in new zealand uh okay. we see ourselves as a born global firm so we're based in barcelona but you know we have team in dubai and london and uh, a few other markets as well but we're mostly based in barcelona um we this is going public very soon i can i think i can say it here anyway but uh, uh another commercial client of ours london northeastern rail which is a uk rail operator it goes from london to aberdeen scotland okay um we go live with them in may so end of may early june so it's coming soon um and then as we talked about earlier we have you know quite a few new projects emerging like the next earth which is a global project um we also have uh several suppliers as we talked about like bolt and tier and boy and via um and many other big national regional or global suppliers connected to our ecosystem and we also have now i'm not at liberty to say the names but we have one of the world's largest automated fare collection companies as a partner no oh, okay and um, they operate in dozens of cities maybe 100 cities or more around the world and a very large company as a partner and i think in the next few months that will be public and we have another partner which is one of the world's largest system integrators um that partnership is currently constrained to a one national um request for proposal uh, opportunity which is really exciting because it's a very very large country um where the national rail operator is looking for a solution like what we offer and the partnership is for imob to work with this global system integrator to deliver this sort of door to door rail experience for a whole very large nation um so that's another example of a partnership we have with respect to um moving forward as a transit agency with baby steps i guess and experimentation certainly playing around with nfts is a very light way of as you've tried is a light way that doesn't necessarily um you know impact core operations it's an experiment that you can do kind of in an isolated way i think you know connecting your service to a company like imob where 
you're not required to necessarily go deep in blockchain at all to be part of it, but then you can learn. And one of the things that you know everyone in blockchain says for people that want to learn more about these projects and crypto and everything, one of the first recommendations you always hear is find a project you're interested in mm. and engage in that project. So go into their Discord channel. I mentioned Discord before as like, the main community engagement and management tool that all blockchain projects use. I've gotten deep in the next earth discord channel and I'm, you know, really engaged with our community. And it's been a way for me to learn more about their community, but also just learn more about blockchain from different use cases in this case, metaverse and what's possible for my company just by understanding better their community and what they want. Um, so my point would be, for example, a transit agency could come to the IOM uh, Discord channel and just start kind of tracking the conversations and engage in conversation. That's super low-hanging fruit that doesn't require anything but some time. So there's got to be somebody at almost every travel ag- a transport agency in the world that's interested in blockchain, that's studying its impacts and trying to figure out what it could do for them. Come visit our Discord channel and dive in and you don't have to make any commitment. You don't have to have any tokens to be involved in the Discord and you can start asking questions of the community and engage and learn without doing anything. As far as like going beyond that to actually like taking a step more concrete in in the blockchain world, I would say again, the first thing would be maybe do it at an arm's length where you're participating as a transit agency providing services into a blockchain project, whether that's one around data could yeah. be a blockchain project just around mobility data and how you can monetize and capture transportation data and do stuff with it in blockchain. And that's a super safe thing, right? Because you're not changing your transportation offer to users. You're just experimenting with a new data platform. Um, there, there's another step, for example, that can happen in the IOM journey, which I think would be, I, I'm, I'm really excited for this to happen sometime. We had a conversation with a national it's actually a ministry that has transportation within it. It's a national one in Europe. And they are interested in maybe trying to have governance rights of a national level DAO to the IOM for their country. So they're a national transportation agency. Their interest, it's, got, it's super early exploration. But one idea is that they could basically operate that sub DAO in the IOM network, and they could choose to offer co-ownership rights to that DAO, to private transportation um, companies, to private citizens who can now co-own their local, their, their national transportation ecosystem and have influence over the governance. Um, So Basically, there's a whole range of things that could be done depending on the the commitment level of the transit agency. But I think, you know, in most cases, there are some very accessible baby steps they can do without any meaningful commitment at all. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Boyd. I really love uh, the way you structure it. It's always uh, getting involved in the community, which doesn't cost any money. And it's, uh, it's a way to learn. And in fact, there is a, there is a funny... It, thing like uh, in in these new technology blockchain metaverse and nft you don't have anybody with 10 or 20 years of experience you know people who has experience is 
probably two years or one year <laughs> because these technologies are so new. So you nobody can claim that I have 10 or 20 years of experience in metaverse or NFT because it's if they so do, new. Don't believe them. They're lying. <laughs> they don't. Yeah. Don't believe them. So the only way is to learn. And that's what we are seeing. Like a lot of venture firms are hiring young people uh, as a, as a partners and all for uh, crypto and web three. And I think for transit agencies as well, probably their young employee can be their ambassador getting involved in the discord channel and in the telegraph and all in fact i'll be happy to put the the link of uh, discord channel of imop so that if people are interested they can join that the conversation and be part of the company right. and i think that's a way to learn collaborate exactly. which you mentioned earlier too collaborate yeah. collaborate and collaborate i agree so thank you so much we we learned so much about uh, the blockchain side technology side about imop uh, but now it's time to learn more about you we we got a little bit uh, glimpse in your career, but I want to now know a little bit more of your personal side. What Uh-oh. what you love to do? What you <laughs> want to do? So we have this rapid fire question round, and generally we have these five questions, and we ask people. And today I added a new question for you because uh, uh, I want to give you a bit surprise. So my first question, if you're ready, I'll start. Let's go. Okay. So my first question, if you were not in education or blockchain sector, what other profession you would have selected? Uh, probably be a venture investor, um, probably leading an investment DAO where I would work with a community of people with a aligned interest, for example, around um, blockchain projects that have an impact on climate uh, and invest in the ones that we like most because I've not always had the most fun experiences with investors. And I feel like I know I, I could be a good one that would actually, it's funny, every venture fund always promises they're like very founder friendly, but very few of them actually are. Oh yeah. And I believe I would be because I've experienced the pain of being on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> that's important. And that's what I feel is uh, you should always have empathy for founders and entrepreneurs. It's not easy, man. It's not easy to start something, even if it's a stupid idea. Uh, but still they are taking the first step and whenever you are starting your fun, let me know. I'll be first uh, person to join. <laughs> Sounds good. So regarding your question and you mentioned you already traveled so much around the world. You've seen so many cities and all, which is your favorite city in the world? This will probably sound like I'm biased, but I don't think I am uh, Barcelona. So I live in Barcelona now, but you know, the backstory, the quick backstory is I actually lived in Madrid 20 years ago and um, 15, no, 13 years ago or so, I met my future wife and um, early in our um, engagements and in our interactions, I asked her a question. I said, uh, if you could live in any three cities in the world, which ones would they be? And we had two of the same three cities, which is really strange because she's from Venezuela. I'm from the U.S., and we overlapped in two of the cities and they were uh, Buenos Aires and Barcelona. And we actually, after that, lived in Buenos Aires and now we live in Barcelona. And Barcelona was our number one choice. Um, and as you say, I've lived in many cities and countries in the world and I've traveled to many more. And so we chose Barcelona because it was our favorite city. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's, and, and whatever your wife say is the best answer. So if your wife is happy, <laughs> your life is happy. In fact, sure. uh, I'll be I'll be there in Barcelona next year. So will be great opportunity to catch up uh, in, in person and and see the city. And and like you mentioned, you lived you you spend time in a lot of the city, and you also mentioned you don't really 
have a driving license. I mean, you have, but you don't use it too much. Oh, I don't have one. Oh, you don't have one. So you yeah. are the best user of public transport network. So my next question is, which city has the best transit network in the world? So this might surprise you and your listeners, because I think I might be inclined to say Amsterdam. And mm. the reason I would say Amsterdam isn't so much for the public transit network, which is pretty good, but because they embrace what an old um, head of, was he a head of urban planning for Buenos Aires once told me in his office, Daniel Chain in, in Argentina. He said, because we we're debating like the best, we we're debating this very question for an event we are hosting around like if we were going to invite someone from a city to discuss best practices in transportation, who would we invite? And he said something to me that stuck with me ever since, which is, Boyd, the best transportation policy is, is the best urban planning policy. And whatever yeah. city does urban planning the best, that reduces the need to travel in vehicles or even in public transit is the best public tra best transit city. And yeah. I lived in Amsterdam for three months when we, we were in Techstars, which is a accelerator for tech startups in Amsterdam a couple of years ago. And as CEO, I had to be the one who suffered and uh, spent three months <laughs> living in Amsterdam. And I rented, a, they have this big famous um, company there now called Swap Feeds, which is a monthly bike rental service. Okay. And I, I signed up for that right after moving there. And yeah, I just explored the whole region on bike, never almost ever gotten a car and didn't need to because everything is so accessible by bike there. And, you know, every year they're making it harder and harder to drive a car there. I think it's over like a five-year plan. They're going to reduce something like 15,000 parking spaces in the core of the city. So, you know, the best transit city is the one that doesn't need transit because you can get around without it. You can go on a bike and their transit system is quite good. But, oh, yeah. you know, the, the ability to bike in, in Amsterdam, of course, is insane. And so that's why they get number one for me. No, I, I will not forget this line now is like the best uh, transit city, the, the city which has the best urban planning. So yeah. this line will now remain with me. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, now my my next question is, which is, is unique for you is, what are you most excited about this or next year? What, what do you think will kind of change? Hmm. I mean, if you think, of, if you're referring to sort of things that directly relate to IAMOB, I would certainly say the adoption of blockchain and the mainstreaming of blockchain into more um, IRL in real life applications, including mobility. I think, you know, it's really starting to take off now. And I'm really excited about that because I really believe there's this term that I've embraced called uh, regenerative crypto economics, which is mm -hmm. This idea that you can bake into token economic models and crypto um, regenerative economic and ecological benefits to society. So positive externalities baked into blockchain and baked into the token economics. And I believe we're gonna start to see a lot more of those use cases like IMOB go mainstream and get, you know, get attention and, and buy-in from ecosystem stakeholders. and. I'm very excited about that because that poses the potential for us to, you know, transform our society and our economies in a much accelerate our path towards a low carbon and more inclusive society, which is something that's long overdue. 
<laughs> no, that's a that's a great answer, and um, and I'm I'm too looking forward to that. Uh, that how these new technology will change the world this and next year because last two years were remarkable and i think the pace will now further accelerate in next couple of years or this year so i'm also looking forward and and like you said uh, seeing this internet mobility thing becoming mainstream it'll be will be fun now my last question is and i don't know because you are at a very good position right now you have fun in life uh, if still you can change one thing in in your life what would it be hmm. change one thing in my life what would it be my son lives in canada and i would want him to be living with us he's he's you know of age to live where he wants he's just out of high school um and i miss him so uh. <laughs> I would I would change the the physical location of my son from Vancouver. No offense, I know you live in Canada <laughs> to Barcelona, uh, so he could be with us and his sister on a on a regular basis. I know you're probably thinking of something more professional, but no, it, everything no, else a, that's the thing I would change. That's great. No, being a being a father too, I can I can imagine what you're saying. It's. Uh, whenever i go away on a trip uh, you know that's the thing you miss is the family and yeah. and i think that's more important uh, that's why i hate when people say metaverse is just living in a virtual world because i think life happen in irl in real yeah, life yeah. so you can't escape from that so thank you so much boyd i mean uh, i would say that in last one and a half hour we had such a learning session i learned a lot of new terms and all it's like a power pack session i i couldn't have collected this knowledge in 3 months or 3 years mm-hmm. which i learned in one and a half hours so thank you so much for your time and i really appreciate it and wish you good luck with a lot of these upcoming project thank you jospel i hope we didn't bore your listeners and they don't fall asleep halfway through such a long session <laughs> no they will be awake and they will be more energetic and probably you will receive more email for questions from them i hope so <laughs> thank you so much Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be inviting some other inspiring guests in the coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info@theretmobility-innovators.com. At I look forward to see you next time.